And we welcome you once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection where faith meets reason. We're here each week on EWTN. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper on Mother Angelica Way. And it's emailing your questions to spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. That's so important, especially for this program. I'm going to be basically doing your questions, catching up on some of the ones we've gotten over the months that we haven't gotten to yet. But don't forget to check out all of Father Spitzer's websites. Uh, he's the king of the web, magiscenter.com, crediblecatholic.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and that's just the beginning. I'm sure there'll be more coming. Father Spitzer's Universe, of course, is always available on the EWTN On Demand page and our EWTN YouTube channel where we have tons of programming, more than anybody else in Catholic programming. In addition to Father Spitzer, there's this other Jesuit, uh, and uh, along with Jim and Joy Pinto, uh, Father Mitch, and of course our homilies from the Daily Mass uh, are there as well. They're all free, always available, EWTN on demand and you can get it through our app on your phone so take us anywhere you're out and about and today we're taking your questions as we say from our viewers and with that said we'll get to father spitzer ask him to kick things off for us with a prayer sure in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen heavenly father we give you thanks for your many blessings to us the blessing of our faith this church our families our our religion and we ask you, Lord, to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that whatever we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, amen. So, you, you ready, Father? We can uh, get the, uh, the, the mailbag here. Yeah. Dear, dear Father Spitzer, you discussed salvation outside the church on a recent show about how some non-believers can be saved. I know a person born and raised in the Catholic Church in their adult life, after intense study and discernment, they came to believe that God did not exist and thus embraced atheism. Could this person be saved if they persisted in their sincerity, held, sincerely held belief that God does not exist? Carmine. Uh, well, um, Carmine, here's what I would say. Uh, in order for you to commit a mortal sin which endangers your salvation, uh, remember what you have to do. The first thing is it has to be a grievous matter. Well, becoming a, basically an atheist would probably be right up there in the grievous matter department. Uh, the second thing, though, is you need sufficient knowledge. Now, you'd think he had sufficient knowledge mm -hmm. uh, because uh, he studied the matter intensely, it says, but it seems that he's come out with some kind of an opposite uh, conviction. But here's the other thing is full consent of the will, that there's no impediments to the free use of his will. Now, um, I don't know what he studied, mm -hmm. and um, I don't even know if he was sincere in his study, even though he says he was. And so that's a hard thing to figure out. I, I certainly don't know whether he had uh, any impediments to the free use of his will. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, you know, he was bothered by some personal suffering in his life that caused him to think... Uh, uh, you know, that suffering was just an irreconcilable problem and he mm -hmm. didn't turn to any good resources, uh, you know, to figure this problem out. Another possibility might be that, you know, perhaps he knew 
uh, some people who basically taught him that God was a tyrant or something, and he couldn't reconcile that. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there could be so many different things that affected him. So the answer is, yes, it's possible for him uh, to be saved. Uh, certainly, you know, if he became an atheist, uh, um, you know, with sufficient reflection, in other words, he did have sufficient knowledge, and he did have full consent. Well, there's no impediments to the free of his will to... Uh, you know, not do this to be an authentic mm -hmm. person and, uh, you know, um, um, uh, still uh, be an atheist. Well, I have to tell you, yeah, mm -hmm. he would have committed a mortal sin that would right. uh, jeopardize his salvation. So, uh, unless he confessed it, right. but as an atheist, he probably wouldn't. So, um, but the answer is, yeah, he certainly could be saved, no question. Right, and at the same time, he could not be saved, right? If he continues on. That's right. On same time, he might not right. be saved. Right. Yeah. And, and let me ask yeah. you, with that, in your experience, because a lot of times, you know, we we talk about dealing with agnosticism and atheism, especially in mm -hmm. younger mm -hmm. people and people today. What would you say is the number one reason that someone who, let's say, was raised in the faith, you know, everything, and then decides to be an atheist? What is the thing that prompts them to make that choice? Well, today, uh, it used to be suffering. Mm -hmm. So um, that used to be the big um, issue. Um, and um, uh, certainly with middle-aged people and higher, mm -hmm. that would still be the main issue. So there's some point of suffering that happened or some suffering in the world mm -hmm. or something that this person endured uh, that occurred, something like that, that just, or they just said, you know, I just can't believe that God would allow this to happen. And so they just lose mm -hmm. heart and they basically give up. That used to be the main reason. Today, however, if you take a look at the Pew surveys, mm -hmm. uh, it looks like the biggest reason by far, which would affect uh, certainly 50% uh, of our young people, is they do not believe that there is any evidence for God, any objective evidence for God, and they uh, concomitantly believe that there is a f uh, division between, a contradiction even, between faith and science. Since science must be the truth, mm -hmm. they think, mm -hmm. therefore uh, faith must be false. So that's the new uh, big reason for atheism today. I think a lot of our young people fall prey to um, you know, a Dawkins site or something, God delusion site, mm -hmm. something like that. And um, it probably not only um, uh, affects them in the short term, unfortunately, once they take the big dive and broadcast it to the world that they have taken the dive mm -hmm. into atheism, it's very hard for them to turn back. Right. And so, um, unfortunately, Is that pride? they... Uh, is that your own uh, pride then? Yeah, the uh, they could be pride, pride in, uh, or they feel themselves locked in. But yeah, pride is certainly going to fuel that fire without right. any doubt. Right. So, um, um, but yeah, yeah, that's it's very unfortunate. Well, the, but they always say I do it's think, right easier to fool someone than convince somebody they've been fooled. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's so true. Wow, mm -hmm. I wish I'd known that before. Uh, actually, I'd never heard that before, but it is mm -hmm. so true. And, uh, and uh, I'd also say uh, in, in the same breath, we have a responsibility, too, to get this information to young people because if 66% of young scientists are theists mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, only about, uh, um, you know, 13% uh, are atheists and mm -hmm. uh, whatever it is, 14% uh, are agnostics, um, hey, wait a minute here. 
66% uh, uh, theist compared to 14 or 13% atheist. Uh, I got to tell you, there is something um, going on here mm -hmm. uh, where the scientists are clued in, mm -hmm. uh, but our young people are being bamboozled. I mean, they basically think that um, there's no uh, uh, scientific evidence for God. In fact, that science and, and faith are contradictory. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, um, or I should say, fortunately, scientists don't believe that themselves, mm -hmm. and they're clearly on the side of belief in God. And doctors are even higher at 76% mm -hmm. uh, are believers in God, and only 11% of doctors are atheists. So you can see mm -hmm. um, that uh, the culture really is bamboozling these young people, and uh, that uh, the actual scientists and the actual, or young scientists, I should say, and the actual uh, doctors themselves overall are, are much more likely to be believers and religious practitioners. Right. It's interesting, too, because on one level they say they can't see anything besides materialism per se, but yet they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're interested in the force or there's something else out there. But, the, but it's like, well, you can't see that either, so how do you know that that's real or even yeah. an option? Yeah. Well, you know, in the case of young people, oftentimes I think it is... Um, uh, some form of, um, uh, you know, it's not just an intellectual problem. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they just, you know, they, they don't want to be accused of needing a crutch or being weak. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the big motivating factors. And another big motivating factor is, uh, in many cases, they don't want to believe in a particular religion's moral stance. Right. And so that's another kind of... Um, uh, motivating factors. So when you combine uh, the three things that they are seriously misled mm -hmm. and you can turn that around. Boy, we have statistics that show that anybody who takes our senior level course, it's a one semester uh, senior level elective, they call it Apologetics 1, that uh, we issue through Sophia Institute mm -hmm. for teachers. I mean, if you take that course, the odds of you being an, an atheist or even close to an atheist hmm. at the end of that course are about zero. So, I mean, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a very, very good thing to do. Now, you get the information and they're not going to be misled. Mm -hmm. But if, you, if they are misled, that's when they fall into the other two deceptions. Well, you know, I don't want to be known as a weakling and I don't have anything to defend my faith. Therefore, they get stuck by the crutch argument and they get motivated to, to kind of abandon ship because they don't want to be weaklings and they don't have a way of rationally responding that they're not a weakling. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, of course, is if you have a propensity to say, I don't want to go to church anyway, and I don't want to believe in this moral teaching and so forth, if you really believe God's not out there, well, then you just go all the way. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what's happening. But if you right away get them the information, right. and they do have a way of defending themselves, and they do have a way of justifying, you know, going to church and, you know, uh, believing in this morality that a God really exists out there who expects this of them and they can reinforce their conscience with it. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very likely to be believers and stay believers throughout the, the course of their lives. Okay, very good. Let's move ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, another question. Dear Father Spitzer, I love watching you on the show. I'm wondering... When you study or research, do you listen to tapes or use Braille? Also, is there a need for volunteers to record books and research materials for those with vision difficulties? I'm a retired RN, and I'm thinking I could help others in this area. Carol. 
Well, Carol, there is a whole book company that actually does uh, those kinds of things where the volunteers actually read books uh, to blind people. Uh, but for me, um, there's two ways you can get information. My main way of getting information, though, if it's a technical article or if it's, um, you know, something that's on the Internet, I've got my uh, wonderful assistant, Joan Jacoby, and she reads everything to me. I mean, right. she's, and she's a very fast, a clear reader, and um, she also, uh, um, uh, my, you know, I kind of, I, I can remember what she's saying. Absolutely. You and so, yeah. You <laughs> and memorize your uh, talks before you go out and you give them. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's like uh, the amazing so Kreskin or something here. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm lucky. <laughs> I got the good memory. So God made up for, mm. you know, the the eyes. And mm. so as she's reading them, I'm sort of, you know, j j j Joan calls it putting it into the Dewey Decimal System. There you go. But anyway, uh, so uh, but uh, she's my main source. But there are, are Audible books you can get as mm. well, and there are devices on your computer. Uh, right. Which read uh, the thing to you. I mean, th these artificial voices are getting better and better on the computer, but there's nothing like a human voice that's right. actually reading a technical article. And technical articles read by computers, uh, I got to tell you, it's still not there. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, it's better to have an idea. You feel like you're on an old episode of Star <laughs> Trek or something there? Uh, yeah, exactly. Working. <laughs> but that's why we affectionately yeah. call her I Joan, right? So, That's uh, right, I Joan, exactly. <laughs> Here's Very affectionately. There you go. Here's another question. Dear Father Spitzer, ah, right up your wheelhouse. I saw a recent documentary which proclaimed the Shroud of Turin is actually a product of medieval photography. Professor Nicholas Aller reconstructed an image using crude medieval methods that looked like a pretty good replica of the Shroud image. He stated the Shroud of Turin is basically a medieval photograph. What say you, Paul? Uh, that is um, really a very, very easily disprovable contention. Mm. Uh, all you have to do uh, is uh, uh, give any one of the people on the Stirp, the Shroud as, uh, of Turin Research Project team uh, that uh, great so-called replica. And uh, I can assure you, mm. I can absolutely assure you, because the Shroud is the most unique image in the entire world, in the entirety of history, the most unique image. That replica that he has made is not a perfectly precise three-dimensional photographic negative image mm -hmm. on a non-photographically sensitive linen cloth. I can assure you of that fact and there are easy tests that can be done mm -hmm. that can show that fact uh, very simply. I mean first of all you're not going to get uh, images, uh, by the way, of the bones relative to the flesh on the surface of the wound. So, of course, uh, how's he going to get the, the inside uh, rib cage? How's he going to get the bones in the hand? How's he going to get the backbone relative to the flesh, etc.? I mean, this is, uh, you know, what this person has done is nothing more uh, than in a complete absence of information. Talk about non-science, right? He hasn't even studied the actual image. He goes out and just sort of starts from scratch and says, I think I'm going to make a medieval photographer hypothesis. And then he goes off and he does his medieval photography mm. hypothesis thing. And here, this looks like a pretty good replica right here. 
I'll bet it is so different from mm -hmm. the actual shroud. I'd bet, uh, you know, a, a huge household of mm -hmm. money uh, that it certainly doesn't have any interior uh, photographic images, that it certainly doesn't have uh, perfect three-dimensional proportionality between the surface uh, of the uh, cloth and the surface of the body, especially in the places it didn't touch the shroud, mm -hmm. and that you can actually use a V8 NASA analyze, uh, um, uh, image analyzer mm -hmm. and actually see that three perfect three-dimensional proportionality. I'll bet anything, it's right. not even close. And of course, I can assure you that if you used a medieval photographic technique, ah, yes, those medieval photographs right. that were uh, lurking around. <laughs> now, I, you know, I'm not a big historian, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I can just tell you, I haven't seen a lot of those medieval photographic you been, images. You haven't been thumbing uh, through I'm, your photo book for the medieval pictures? I, 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 no, they just weren't around. Some great pictures so, from the crusade I, there, those I wonderful mean, photographs that were it, taken there. It's wonderful that he has thought of this hypothesis. Now, if only Professor Aller could get us uh, some uh, information about where this is found somewhere in medieval history. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you know, if you're going to make conjectures like this, you got to answer simple questions like, hey, wait a minute here. Uh, you, you know, if it's a medieval forgery, then that shroud is only 700 years old or something like that. Well, if that's the case, uh, you know, if that's how you're going to date it and the shroud's only around 700 years, well, we have a provenance for the shroud that's 700 years old. It was found right in Leary, France, 1350 or whatever it was, mm -hmm. by Geoffrey de Chardin's announcement. That's when the Shroud of Turin actually has an established provenance. Now, if that's the case, tell me this. How come there is embedded in the shroud, the largest proportion of pollen uh, grains embedded in the shroud comes from Jerusalem and northern Judea. Tell me why the second uh, greatest number comes from Edessa, Turkey, and the third greatest number comes from Constantinople, Turkey, with many of these grains not being indigenous, just indigenous to the area, but unique to the area. Mm -hmm. Now, if that were the case, you'd have to say, well, if the, the shroud's been in, in France, and Italy, in Europe in other words, in the whole time, then how did it get this huge buildup of pollen frames from the of pollen grains from all these other places, which would require hundreds of years of direct exposure to the open air mm. in those places. How are you going to do that? I mean, these are just the common sense mm. objections that people like that who have not studied one scintilla about the shroud, they make these conjectures and throw it off as if this is actually passable mm. historiography, passable history, let alone passable science. It's uh, called laughable non-science. Anyway, enough said. Right. Well, you know, again, <laughs> you, you can sell books and you can make these, uh, you know, quickie documentaries yeah. there that play yeah. very well yeah. on one of the myriad of alleged history yeah. or <laughs> alleged science channels with these exactly. crazy, you know, they find some yeah. professor from some place, you know, from schools yeah. you've never heard of who conjecture yeah, exactly. that possibly it might be. Uh, some Ooh. possibly did believe it could have, you know, yeah. how many, uh, you know, stipulations they put in there to, to make oh, up yeah. some goofy story, you know. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those famous medieval photographs. Haven't heard of that one yet, but, <laughs> that's, you know, that's there's right. always the aliens, too. Maybe they gave the medieval guy the photograph. Well, maybe they took the Don't photos, know. you know. It might have been the <laughs> yeah, ones who exactly. took the photos. That's really what it is. <laughs> exactly. They said they were going to leave that camera, too, but. Unfortunately, yeah, exactly. they didn't do that. Here's another one. <laughs> Dear Father Spitzer, the Blessed Virgin and the Saints play a role in 
do the Blessed Virgin and the saints play a role in exorcisms? I've heard that Satan hates the Virgin Mary very much because of her humility. Amen. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, that's certainly part of it. And uh, in several exorcisms, uh, you know, the very famous one that I've talked about before on the show, uh, the Robbie Mannheim one that was uh, behind, uh, that was the diary of, of Robbie Mannheim that was done by the uh, St. Louis uh, Jesuits, uh, St. Louis University Jesuits. Uh, that one was the basis of the book, The Exorcist, with mm -hmm. William Peter Blatty. That exorcism, um, the very end part of it, we have St. Michael the Archangel mm -hmm. uh, that comes out and actually orders Satan out. I know uh, that in the right, uh, another book that was written by uh, this fellow uh, Baglio, um, that uh, several of the exorcisms there had the presence of the Blessed Virgin Mary mm -hmm. Uh, as well, uh, you know, where she was uh, present uh, in it. And certainly, um, you, you know, um, uh, it could be a variety of other saints, but the Blessed Virgin Mary definitely has a, a great deal of, of power in this case, and even her own uh, humility. Mm -hmm. uh, remember at Lourdes even, uh, you know, these uh, sort of demonic uh, forces that were around the Gav River, remember? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as the Blessed Virgin Mary shows up, all she does is look toward that river and frown, and that ended the demonic uh, sounds and disturbances. <laughs> One little frown. So uh, I can assure you that um, that uh, right. she could very much be powerful in those uh, uh, exorcisms. Right. Well, her purity must drive Satan crazy. So. Oh yeah, well, absolutely, and her humility both, and right. of course right. her love of God. Right. <laughs> uh, next up, uh, dear Father Switzer, I never miss your program and learn quite a bit about the faith. Are having sinful thoughts as bad as acting on those thoughts? When I was a child, our parish priest told us years ago that one must confess sinful thoughts as they can lead us down the road to destruction. When do sinful thoughts cross the line and become mortal sins? Mike, and we kind of talked a little bit about this earlier. Well, first of all, Mike, yeah, there's a huge difference between having the sinful thought and acting on the sinful thought. Whatever you do, don't cross that line. Uh, so that's the first thing. Uh, and, and uh, you know, sinful thoughts, they can come and they can go. And the idea of, you know, you should confess them. Well, uh, yes, you can confess them, um, you know, uh, and you should confess them. Uh, but uh, the idea is, you know, are all sinful thoughts mortal sins? No. So many of our thoughts do, are not done mm -hmm. with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will. I mean, we, you know, there's just free-floating imagination. Right. It happens all the time. Uh, you can look at some, uh, you know, stimulus over here, mm -hmm. and it provokes some thought over here. Look at your computer over here. Look at the television. Open the magazine. Mm -hmm. You walk down the street. Doesn't matter. You know, all these things can flood into, not to mention even the, 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 the evil spirit stoking that up, uh, you know, and trying to, you know, lure you in even deeper. Mm -hmm. So with all these various things that are happening, uh, what you have to start doing is, you know, entertaining this thing, mm -hmm. right? And just sort of moving in your imagination uh, toward what this thing might look like. Because as you do this, right, as you continue to entertain that thought, then you begin to sort of engage in the pleasures that that thought is bringing, then your desire gets heightened. Mm -hmm. And now you're starting to cross into an area called 
the near occasion of sin. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're basically now, it's not just a free-flowing thing, it's not just a temptation. It's not something that's just a random stimulus that's causing you to imagine something or to think something. Now you're purposefully letting it go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like uh, I always you know, think we have the chance to say no several times before we kind of engage. But, you know, the, the main point is that if in the end you just go, no, I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. And even if you did let it go for a little while, mm -hmm. I just don't consider it a mortal sin because basically you're kind of getting, you know, you're letting yourself get right. dragged into it, no question. But you're, in the end, you basically, your no was definitive and mm -hmm. you did not... Right. Uh, move into action. So I would just say, I would right. think th thoughts are not that often mortally sinful, right. but an action that plays to that thought, if it is a grave matter uh, right. action. Well, maybe maybe, then, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. the priest was, uh, when dealing with children, maybe at a school or something else, was figured, yeah. you know, if you brought up these kinds of things that are tempting you, he could give you some mm -hmm. advice of how to avoid those things from progressing yeah. into something worse, sure. you're kind of suggesting, right? Yeah, sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Here's another uh, confession question. Dear Father Spitzer, I try to make it a habit to go to confession every other week. However, I often have no mortal sins to confess. Sometimes I find this embarrassing, and I think I may be wasting the priest's time. Uh, I wish that was my problem. What should I do? This is from <laughs> Tim. So. Well, Tim, I, you know, I would still just go uh, to confession because there are lots of graces there uh, from, you know, the, the uh, you know, the grace of absolution just doesn't stop at absolving mortal sins and even stop at venial sins. It really does uh, give us that capacity uh, to examine our conscience and then that graced resolve uh, after our examination of conscience, you know, that desire to I don't want to just slip back, you know, it really gives you great resolve toward not committing mortal sins in the future. So if you're going every other week, just keep going every other week. It's a really great habit, and I think it really does help you. In other words, you probably, mm -hmm. uh, the reason you're not committing some more mortal sins is because basically you are going to confession. That's a part of the of it and your your mm -hmm. your no really means no because you're, you're resolved on that and I think that those are part of the graces that come from confession so stick with it I think it's a great plan and don't get too embarrassed uh, just uh, that's what the priest is there for mm -hmm. is to forgive those sins and to give you that full grace of absolution which has many many other graces besides uh, just you know the absolution itself Okay, we got about three minutes to the break. Here's another question okay. related to that. Dear Father Spitzer, I read an article that quoted a former Catholic priest, that says a lot, as saying most Catholics no longer go to confession. He himself had not gone for 30 years. The article then stated that the Mass contains an absolution where the priest asks for God's forgiveness of the sins of all those present. This does not replace confession, does it, Leo? Leo, no, no. No, I mean there there is uh, you know that absolution uh, 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 that is present. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, bring us to everlasting life. Yes, but I mean the idea 
uh, you know, that this is a replacement for the sacrament of reconciliation, that is just plumb wrong. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, what's happening in the sacrament of reconciliation is you're going there. You're troubling yourself to go to that sacrament. And you're going there even though it's difficult. You're going there with an examination of your conscience and preparing for it. You're going there and receiving, then, the grace of absolution that is particular to that sacrament, specifically for the, the case of mortal sins, right? Right? And so, uh, you, you know, you absolutely, this is wrong advice. And, and uh, I'm telling you, the devil's worst nightmare is that you go to confession. And so the idea that somebody says, I, I'm proud of the fact that I haven't gone to confession for 30 years because I'm getting absolution at Mass, this is crazy talk. Uh, I mean, this is absolutely wrong. And, and so uh, my, my one thought would be uh, that, that, that advice champions uh, you know, Satan. He's powerless against you know, the grace of absolution. Why uh, would you not take advantage mm -hmm. of this great sacrament? Yes. It, it, you have to go to confession. That's trouble. Uh, you know, yes, you have to examine your conscience. Yes, you actually have to tell your sins to the priest. Yes, you get at the end of the day a real reward for doing that. Mm -hmm. Boy, that uh, absolution not only forgives your mortal sins and vineyards, it just rips the grip of Satan right off your neck. I mean, that's a great reward in and of itself, and then the grace to resolve. So no, it's not a replacement. It was never intended right. to be a replacement. And, um, uh, you know, I think that's really, really bad spiritual advice. Right. Well, it is from a former Catholic priest. So we shall take a break and uh, have yeah. much more with Father Spitzer answering your questions. Stay with us. And we do appreciate you staying with us here in the heart of Father Spitzer's universe, taking on your questions as only Father Spitzer can. And uh, you, you ready for round two, Father? I'm ready. Okay, very good. <laughs> here we go. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, I know that someone who persists in living in sin numbs their conscience to sin. Can a person's conscience ever die out completely? Harper. Well, Harper, I mean, uh, it could... It, it could become so indolent and so, you know, um, you know, suppressed that it'd be effectively nothing. But no, it would not ever be nothing because really the voice of conscience is, as John Henry Newman says, the authoritative yet fatherly voice of God. And so um, <clears throat> God's never going to abandon you or abandon your conscience, <clears throat> but you can suppress it. Mm -hmm. You can suppress his voice. Uh, to the point where it's totally ineffective, um, but uh, no, it would never really go away because, uh, you know, um, God's never going to really abandon being present to us. So that's the, uh, but you can render it, you know, uh, wholly ineffective. I'll, I'll say that's the, the answer there. Okay, very good. Next up, uh, dear Father Spitzer, why does a priest need to know every detail regarding the sins I confess? I realize that a priest wants to discern whether a sin was committed or not and what penance to give, but I think knowing every detail could prove to be a temptation for the priest himself. Tina. 
Gee, Tina, I, uh, yeah, I probably, uh, you may want to go to another confessor there. I, I don't think that, uh, you know, if, if it's needed to, to determine whether there's something gravely sinful there or something, I guess right. uh, that might have some import. But to know every detail, I don't, right. um, you know, that's just never been uh, the custom of anybody I know. So uh, uh, maybe there's a little bit too much zealousness there. I don't think he's searching or something for, uh, you know, um, you know, more detail, but maybe he's just too zealous. Um, maybe uh, you, you might want to go to another uh, right. uh, confessor who, uh, who maybe is a, a little less zealous. Right. Good. Okay. Good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, if I'm correct, you once stated that in heaven we will be pure spirit. That is, we won't have eyes to see or ears to hear. I guess it makes sense, huh? but when this is what they're saying. But when I heard this, it broke my heart because I have longed to see and hug those who have gone before me. Hopefully those will come after me. Perhaps my hopes of heaven are too small and narrow-minded. Abby, you want to clarify that? or? Yeah, Abby, I never yeah. said anything like that. That's, right. uh, that's not me. I'm a believer in the glorified body. Right. So uh, uh, a risen body. And of course, you know, we'll have vision and you will see. And of course, you'll have hearing and you'll be able to hear. And of right. course, you'll be able to have contact with those you love. And of course, you'll be able even to have a, a contact and see Christ and, and uh, uh, you know, in all of his risen body glory too. And of course, yeah. we'll be, you know, you know, that same, you know, sort of interpersonal personhood that comes through our embodiment, it will be there, but in a transformed body, a glorified body. But of course, you'll be able to do all those things. So I'm afraid you might have me mixed up with somebody else, but that mm -hmm. wasn't me. But uh, boy, I can assure you, uh, that's not a Christian doctrine about pure spirit. Right. So uh, that's uh, Christian doctrine is glorified body. Body, right. And I, th I think it's because of the kind of, the kind of a spiritualized body in the sense that the like our Lord's oh, body was I different see. and, you know what I mean, obviously yeah, it passed yeah. through. And so oh, it might have been I see. kind of they picked up on, yeah. on that fact. On that. That's a possibility. Yeah, but there's maybe. also the body part. Of right, it. exactly. Yeah. So right. I get you. Okay. Right. I think that might Good. be the case. Dear Father Spencer, yeah. I've read where different governments are pushing for laws which would force the priest to break the seal of confession. In all these cases, the church has resisted. Given the increased secularization of the world, do you foresee these types of laws ever being enforced? Would a priest, would a priest weak in his faith go along? Mary. Mary, no, because that would be a sacrilege of the first order. So, uh, no, he's not going to give away anything. Mm -hmm. uh, he can't break the seal of confession, and he wouldn't break the seal of confession. I mean, the idea that they're going to put you in jail, I mean, there's not a priest I know that wouldn't say, well, I guess I got to go to jail. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, rules have changed. You put all the priests in jail, go right ahead. But if this is a democracy, I don't think people are going to stand for that for long. Mm -hmm. So whoever's making those laws, get ready. You might get a little, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, whiplash there. You might get a little, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, payback. So, um, uh, politically, too. So, well, let me uh, but ask we, you. We definitely go to right. jail. Well, let me ask you uh, let's go to uh, taking it to the, you know, a more extreme situation. Somebody, a uh, priest gets tortured or is threatened, we're going to shoot you in the head unless you tell us. So, in, in that case, they don't have total consent of the will. So, does that impact that? 
Yeah, uh, in that case, I mean, if the guy really just had a breakdown and just said, I can't do it, mm -hmm. like, you know, we, you have those instances where some of the, um, you know, people who were being subjected to torture, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, in various uh, places, uh, bailed out mm -hmm. and, um, you know, admitted whatever they wanted them to admit. And, um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that could definitely happen. Mm -hmm. And it may not uh, be for that person per se a mortal sin, but uh, still he would not be able to practice right. uh, his priesthood again until uh, some bishop restored him mm -hmm. uh, back, uh, you know, from the automatic excommunication for the sacrilege. Right. Okay. So, um, so, you know, mortal sin's one thing, but that's uh, basically right. um, an excommunicatable offense. So. Um, you'd have to have some kind of restoration from the bishop. So yeah, I suppose you know, um, uh, you know, some people, you know, some people did. You know, mm -hmm. there were, you know, and the, the the horrible things that happened in Africa and Nagasaki and things like that. There were people who basically just said, "I can't take it," you know, right. sure. and they uh, they uh, uh, caved in. Right. Okay. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, I've been reading a book about various Eucharistic miracles and how scientific tests are conducted to determine their validity. Since some of the tissue mm -hmm. ends up destroyed, are there steps taken to prevent sacrilege in destroying the body of Christ, or is that not a concern, George? Well, George, I mean, uh, uh, every step is taken not to destroy anything. So even if uh, a piece of that uh, tissue is taken and it's brought to a laboratory uh, in order to test for various kinds of things, um, the objective there is to preserve every bit of it. So uh, that is the first thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, none of it uh, uh, needs to be destroyed uh, in order to, to do those tests. Uh, right now, um, you know, there are... Um, you know, uh, ways of, you know, investigating these things in the most respectful way possible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have to also believe that Jesus makes these kinds of transformed Eucharistic hosts available in this scientific age because it's basically, he's basically saying, please, mm -hmm. you know, tell this scientific age that this passes muster. This is, this is perfectly, uh, uh, you know, this is really living tissue. Mm -hmm. There are real living uh, macrophages, white blood cells, various kinds of uh, indications that uh, there's even, not just the tissue is alive and manufacturing red blood cells, mm -hmm. but the white blood cells, you know, the white blood cells are not gonna last for one single second when the tissue's dead. How can you have white blood cells, macrophages, and everything else going you know t taking place inside this tissue uh, unless that tissue is alive mm -hmm. and, and so this is uh, really remarkable I think what God is asking us to do is tell the world mm -hmm. and so I think you know that uh, um, you know uh, cast on uh, casting young Gomez uh, who's uh, uh, you know done so much of this great work and so many other uh, people uh, um, you know who've done this mm -hmm. this work on the Eucharistic hosts I mean uh, it's uh, uh, really, really important, and I think, like I said, people are being exceedingly careful not to destroy it. So it's not like a carbon-14 testing, right. where you actually have okay. to, uh, right. you know, destroy the the, the actual, uh, uh, you know, uh, right. tissue. And I that mean, might be the what, tissue, but the, uh, what somebody has in their mind, as in yeah. the sense of yeah. that. 
Next up, dear Father Spitzer, I believe the church teaches that the soul is infused at fertilization when a new life is created. Mm -hmm. But what happens in the case of identical twins? Are two souls infused at once? Is a second soul created when the original cell splits into two? This is something I've always wondered about since my brother and I are twins. Ben. Yeah, I would say two souls are created. And I would say that, uh, um, you know, from that first second after the first vision uh, actually takes place, uh, giving rise to those uh, fine twins, uh, the second soul uh, uh, is created and uh, so uh, uh, once you have a physical being in which the soul is implanted God is perfectly capable of detecting when that moment happens and is perfectly capable of giving that unique uh, transphysical soul uh, to that uh, second uh, twin or to the triplet or whatever so um, uh, the idea uh, is uh, yes uh, you are correct that uh, fertilization is the moment at which the first soul certainly would be infused uh, but then again the minute the, uh, the second um, you know uh, human being emerges uh, seconds later God just puts the soul uh, in that that would be my you know since I have no doctrine on which to depend I, I would suppose that that's the way it is at least that's in my poor uh, imagination uh, that's the way I, I would con con conceive of it, no, no pun intended. Very good. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, we should live our faith so as to draw others to Christ. How can we defend the Catholic faith when so many quote-unquote Catholics are not living a life in accordance with church teaching? Lisa. Well, Lisa, I mean, I think that's the whole problem that Archbishop Cordelioni is facing mm -hmm. uh, right now as he's uh, Archbishop, I mean, and Bishop Paprocki and many others mm -hmm. uh, are courageously facing. They basically are saying, uh, yeah, I think, um, um, you know, if we see something as the premier moral issue of the day, and there are people that are going around calling themselves good Catholics who are in a political position uh, and, and are taking advantage of that political position to promote a massive scale uh, you know, commission of this kind of sin, and they're doing it and calling themselves good Catholics. I think, you know, our shepherds have to say mm -hmm. something, uh, but we also can know too, right? Uh, even before our shepherds say something, we can say, that person is not a good Catholic. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just not right. You know, you can't be sitting there promoting, you know, what, what about the days of slavery? Mm -hmm. You know, you had eight encyclicals from the Catholic Church, you know, condemning the practice, and Yet people went off and said, you know, I'm, I'm a good Catholic. I'm, right. You know, I'm just going to own and dispose of these slaves at will. You know, well, maybe that's not right. So, um, and of course, uh, there's no maybe about it, obviously. But uh, pretty clearly, that's, that's wrongheadedness. And I think we should stop doing that. I think our church leaders should take actions where we're really dealing with public figures, political right. leaders who are actively promoting this on a massive scale. I think um, right. uh, you know we do have to, to say something about it, but you you we Lisa, you know better. I know better, mm -hmm. and we'll just keep uh, we know better, and we're not going to be uh, doing any kind of gross hypocrisy like that. And some of those leaders who say the opposite, they know better too. Uh, next up, uh, <laughs> dear right. Father Spitzer, why are Western <laughs> countries more secular while third world countries tend to be more religious? It seems the more God blesses a nation, the more it turns from him. Bill. 
Well, Bill, you know, uh, Western culture has gone through its cycles, uh, and it's had very fervent periods and very secular periods. Um, uh, right now, um, uh, we are secular, but we're not nearly as, as secular as the 19th century. That's, mm -hmm. uh, at least in, in academic circles, we're not. Um, so, uh, you know, in a, in a way, you know, that's, uh, you know, uh, we're kind of, we kind of come back and go back. And as I said before, right now, you know, with uh, the Pew survey of those scientists, uh, overall, 51% of scientists are believers in God, but overall, 66% of young scientists are believers in God. Well, that means that the younger ones have to be uh, more believers and religious than the older ones. So in that sense, we can see that the academic discipline go in the opposite direction, going toward theism, openness to God, um, and uh, even openness to miracles, openness to a soul. So that's uh, the way it's, you know, so we, we have these moments where there's a lot of enthusiasm and not. I think what's going on in terms of uh, moral practice, however, uh, yeah, we, um, again, in the West, uh, um, you know, we, we do have our problems with certain moral practices, but this is also happening in developing countries. I mean, I have to tell you that uh, it's, it's not, you know, all that pretty in developing countries on the moral level, uh, especially in, with respect to sexual sins or even uh, sins that, uh, you know, where you have real mm -hmm. uh, manifest uh, anger and even uh, killing going across tribal boundaries, a variety of other kinds mm -hmm. of things. So it's... I don't think it really cuts quite, you know, that clearly. Uh, there's no doubt that in terms of religious fervor, uh, developing countries do have more fervor. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, uh, I'm not sure whether that is because in the West, um, you know, the idea of manifesting fervor or showing fervor uh, is... Uh, sometimes poo-pooed, hmm. but remember, religious, uh, you know, enthusiasm uh, is not necessarily manifest in, in uh, displaying fervor. Uh, you can be a very good, courageous Catholic who really does, uh, you know, say things, um, you know, maybe uh, uh, not just among your friends, but even courageously take stands in public and in the public square, uh, but in a quieter way. And, uh, and so I think, uh, you know, when you get down to it, it's, it's kind of hard to, to just to do a cut and dry distinction like that. What would like you think that, about uh, the idea, though, too, that along with that is the idea, as people take on possessions, as people's lives and sense become easier in the sense of the, the basic needs and things like that, mm -hmm, that they, mm -hmm. they start to feel there, it's like while during the war, everybody goes to church and then 9-11's the over and then suddenly people don't. It's like, when, what else do you have to count on? And, and if you're in a, in a third world country where you don't have as much, uh, you might have to rely on God, in, at least in your mind more yeah. so, because you don't have these layers of protection, at least proposed protection. Yeah, I would say that that's true. Right. Uh, and I would say that, you know, the temptation toward materialism mm -hmm. is much higher in a country that has lots 
of material things to possess. Mm -hmm. So uh, no question about that. There could be definitely uh, a greater incidence of material. I'm, I'm sure of it, right. uh, that there's a greater incidence of materialism uh, in the Western culture, in developing, developed countries than in developing countries. Mm -hmm. So that part, uh, no doubt, right. uh, I think that is true. And I also think um, uh, there's, uh, you know, you always have to have, though, a consciousness of really watching out for materialism right. as a part of your religious faith. Because one day that developing country is going to become a developed right. country. Mm -hmm. And as it does so, you know, will it uh, take right. on the the same kinds of things. It might, but again, you can, there's... Right, you can't... If religions are... Endow yeah. them with some intrinsic uh, goodness yeah. that happens yeah. to be there because you happen to be poor. You know what I yeah. mean? Necessarily. And certainly, right. uh, if that was the case, then in some ways you'd say, well, if being a better person and more spiritual is tied to poverty, then we should all be poor, I guess, because that's would be the best mm -hmm. thing for us spiritually. Well, in a way, you could probably say that there is something to having a simple life. Right. Uh, of course, nobody's going to want uh, to have so much poverty that it jeopardizes the health or the well-being mm -hmm. or the education of their children. Right. Uh, that's just counterintuitive. Nobody's going to go there because common sense dictates, well, that's not a good poverty. But there is a simple lifestyle that is very good, that doesn't jeopardize the health and mm -hmm. uh, jeopardize the education and, and uh, jeopardize the religious, uh, you know, uh, fervor of a child, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, uh, you know, or even uh, uh, jeopardize their, their lifespan, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So the idea, you know, there is you've got to figure out which kind of poverty is good. What you know, you a voluntarily undertaken uh, simplified lifestyle is a mm -hmm. very good thing and very healthy. That's why Jesus says, right, uh, the, the camel, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through uh, the eye of a needle and for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. He's just giving a warning. He's just basically saying, look, you get attached to these material things, mm -hmm. it's going to create a whole bunch of inhibitions to your getting into the kingdom of heaven. So maybe right. Some poverty's right. not bad. You'll you'll be better off in getting to heaven, and probably the pre people in developing countries right. will be better off. You know, less impediments to right. getting into heaven than maybe the ones in the uh, right. you know developed countries. So these are the, uh, some of the trade-offs. But definitely, the best thing of all worlds is not to have a develop. You know, is not to have a destructive poverty, right. and at the same time, uh, to have sufficient development to watch out for the. Uh, the health and the education, the well-being of your kids, uh, something of that nature, right. yet at the same time uh, to not get attached to these possessions, to voluntarily, to, to, right. to live a simpler lifestyle, to live a humbler lifestyle, even though you have the capacity uh, to own more, uh, but maybe that you use that to give more, to give right. away some of those funds to, to do something good for the kingdom of God, etc. Very good. Another question with four minutes to go. Dear Father Spitzer, did Jesus inherit his DNA from Mary? Does the church teach that Jesus came from Mary's egg, or was she more or less a surrogate where none of her DNA was given to Jesus, Erica? Well, Erica, I have to believe that she, uh, uh, whatever she, uh, uh, she you know, I, I don't know how the DNA was given. Uh, I mean, I can think of about three possible scenarios, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm sure that her DNA uh, is intrinsic uh, to Jesus's uh, embodiment. I have 
No question about that. Now, how did the father give the counterpart DNA? A God, the father give the counterpart DNA? Well, he certainly he made the first uh, uh, you know double helix. He can uh, make as many as he would like. Uh, you know, so that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Another possibility is that uh, Mary communicates her own humanity in some other way, uh, other than. Uh, you know, using DNA. Uh, if the father wants to choose another way, uh, he created human beings. He can choose any way of embodying his son uh, that uh, is, is good. And to use, of course, Mary as more than a surrogate. Mm -hmm. She's not just a surrogate. Right. Uh, you know, her uh, you know, participation in this, uh, in, in Jesus' embodiment, is integral to the incarnation. Uh, so I'm sure there is a way that the Father could have done something using, you know, Mary's uh, own embodiment to do this. That's another possibility. So, uh, uh, mm -hmm. but, you know, how, how this did happen, we simply don't know. And the Eucharistic hosts seem to be kind of... Um, uh, they, they won't answer our questions uh, because even though there's DNA material in those Eucharistic uh, hosts, mm. oh. the problem is we can't get any polymorphs to amplify. In other words, there's just not an amplifiable profile in any one of the big three, uh, in Tixla, um, in um, Buenos Aires. I'm not so sure about Sokolka, but I, I, I don't if a DNA tests are done in Sokolka, but Tixla and Buenos Aires definitely and that didn't, uh, uh, it, a DNA profile, amplifiable profile didn't show up. So in any case, uh, um, you know, uh, I guess my main thought is that, uh, uh, um, uh, of course, right. Mary's participating in it. Right. And, and I, would th I would think that her DNA would have to be right. part of that and God contributed right. another uh, part of it in order to make uh, that, as it were, the, the new gene. Right, absolutely. And a lot of people would, would think along with that idea that our Lord, uh, you know, favored his mother, so to speak, looks wise, possibly, yeah. you know, sure. as they say. <laughs> absolutely. One last question before we go. i got a minute. So, dear yeah. Father Spitzer, I try to discern God's will for me through prayer, especially when making important decisions. How can I tell if it is God speaking to me, my feelings on the matter, or the devil trying to lead me astray in my decision? you got 60 seconds. <laughs> okay, here's the main thing is feelings alone won't do the trick. The main thing that you really have to look at is uh, feelings are important, consolations and desolations, but, uh, and uh, there's a way of discerning those, but um, uh, you have to test some other things, especially look at the long-term effects mm. on, your, uh, on the level of your trust, and hope and love, as well as look at the long-term effects in terms of your ability to resist temptation and appropriate virtue. If all of those things are in place, that's definitely the Holy Spirit speaking. But if you're going in the opposite direction, decrease in trust, hope, and love, decrease in the ability to resist temptation, appropriate virtue, and you're actually going in a direction which is not helping you to forward the kingdom of God in your life and the lives of others, forget about it. Right. Uh, you got to make a, a change. Even though you had a good feeling about it, it really wasn't the Holy Spirit that was really moving you. Right. Great explanation and a uh, very simple one for people to use. Are you moving in the right direction? With that, we have to move out and ask you for your uh, blessing. And may Almighty God bless you with his Holy Spirit, bless you with the knowledge of his son's heart, and bless you with the, the hope 
and with the, the desire uh, to become like his son in all things so that as you do, you will gradually grow closer to him in love and become that leader and that light for the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. As always, stay well. We shall see you next time. And don't forget Father's books and DVDs available on our EWTM Religious Catalog on demand. You can catch this program, of course. We return to topics from Father's book, Christ versus Satan, in our daily lives next time. And don't forget, bookmark my particular program. I get to talk to wonderful authors each Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And don't forget to join us right here again next week at the intersection of faith and reason. A lot of questions, as you heard. Stay with us for Father Spitzer's universe when the next episode shows up. Hope to see you then. <laughs>